Thanks for coming. I think we're going to have fun today. We're going to figure out what killed Ananias and Sapphira and other oddities of Acts. So what we did yesterday is we suggested that the moment in Acts 15, 28, when in that great letter that the church to Jerusalem sends to Gentile Christians, that that line, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, might be because of its prominence in the book of Acts, it might be a clue, a decisive clue, to Luke's understanding of the church. And if it is, then it might be a kind of good diagnostic related to our own congregations. Is our life configured in such a way that we could have 15, 28 moments as a natural byproduct of our way of life? And I think the answer to that in most congregations I know is no. That we arrange our lives to do something other than discern the movement of the Holy Spirit of God in our midst. Um, I also suggested that a 15-28 moment won't come simply through a, a thin set of practices like the church I told you about that prayed for a few weeks and then kind of voted on what the Holy Spirit had revealed in that two weeks of prayer. That's a fairly thin discernment practice, but rather 1528 moments come out of this thick, descriptive way of life, and that that's what we see in the story of Acts from chapters 1 through 15. And I proposed yesterday that we might tell three surprising stories. We told only one. We told the story of the death of Jesus from Luke's perspective, which pulls back because Jesus identifies his death with the death of all the prophets who've come before him. The death of Jesus pulls back the curtain on sanctioned violence as a way to maintain social order and cohesion. And the sending of the Spirit upon the very people who conspired to put people to death is a sign of a new way of keeping peace. And so the drama of the book of Acts is not Jew versus Gentile, as it's often been read, but the drama of the book of Acts is the power of the civil authorities, whether they be Jewish or Gentile, versus the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of a marginal community. The second story that I was going to tell at length, but I'll only refer to briefly here, happens in chapters 3, 4, 5, six and kind of that range, but there are a series of conflict stories between the 12 and the religious authorities in Jerusalem.
And I just want to put this verse up from Acts 4. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, like we know them, right? And if you skip down and see, and Sadducees, we know them. But the captain of the temple, who's this guy? Why does a temple need a captain? Now in Texas, I know some of you have armed guards at your churches, but for the most part, we don't have captains of the temple. And later in this conflict between Peter and the Sanhedrin, they send the temple police. The temple have police in Acts chapter 4 and 5. And they arrest Peter and John and imprison them and beat them and warn them not to say anything else in the name of Jesus, right? So in that very striking picture of, in fact, um, following that verse, we have this list of official dignitaries that are gathered to stand over against Peter and John. So against the array of those powers, we have Peter who says to the question, by what authority are you doing this? Which is exactly the question now. Peter, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, responds. And I just want you to see that contrast between the temple authorities with police who can sanction arrests, who can beat people, who can coerce them, who can command them, that that array of power stands, that Peter and the others stand over against that power in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the story of Acts, to my thinking. All right, so when we think of power and authority, we think of kings, maybe dictators, maybe even our elected politicians, but we don't think of the realm of authority in relation to economics. We think that, you know, we have an open playing field, and as long as you work hard and are industrious, you can get ahead economically, but we have a different view of the economic world than Luke did and that people in the ancient Near East did. So with that in mind, I want to turn to the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You ready to have a little fun? They didn't have so much, but, and we'll try not to have fun at their expense. Now, before that, we get this summary statement by Luke, and here's just a little Bible study um, advice. When you have a narrative, read the whole thing through, mark all the summaries. Mark the places where the author is gathering up points and orienting you to the meaning of things that have come before and things that are come after. And this one sounds an awful like, an awful lot like Acts 2, 42 through 47. 
And so automatically we're alerted to the fact that we're on pretty hallowed ground here for Luke. So the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. There was not a needy person among them. And this is, I think, a reference to Deuteronomy, that the ideal of covenant fidelity to Yahweh would result in a community where there was not a single needy person among them. Well, I'll get there later. So, as many as owned lands or houses, sold them, brought the proceeds, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And then we get the story of Barnabas, who indeed sells a piece of property and brings the entire proceeds and lays them at the apostles' feet, and they are distributed, right? And immediately following that, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who also sell a piece of property, but hold back some of the proceeds, right? And I think it's interesting how Peter frames the issue from the very beginning. Peter and the Twelve, um, first of all, they don't interrogate Ananias and Sapphira. They have somehow source of knowledge. The text is coy about this. Has God revealed it to them? Are they clairvoyant? Has, we don't know. But they know that Ananias and Sapphira have held money back from the proceeds of the sale of their land. And so Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and hold back proceeds from the sale of the land? Now, I have a lot of friends who will say the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is not holding back proceeds, but lying about it. But I think the sin is holding back proceeds. That is what the lie is. And the lie is not to Peter and the Twelve. The lie is to the Holy Spirit. And the lie for Luke is at its core, of the devil. Now, I want to go back through some of Luke's stuff in the gospel and get after this business about the Holy Spirit and the devil. You, you ready, Richard? All right. After Jesus' baptism... He is led by the Spirit into the wilderness and is tempted by the devil. After resisting the devil, Luke tells us that the devil departed from him until a more opportune time. 
So we're left to ask, when's this more opportune time? And the next time the devil appears as a character in Luke's gospel is when the devil entered Judas called Iscariot, one who, who was one of the twelve, and Judas went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers of the temple police. So again, notice the authority arrayed against Jesus in this situation. Judas, entered by Satan, now goes to the temple police about how he might betray him to them. And they were greatly pleased and agreed to give him money. So, a few things to notice about this more opportune time, right? Clearly, this takes place at the high point in the story of the Gospel of Luke, the betrayal of Jesus before his death. Satan puts Judas in league with the authorities and the temple police. Given what we saw previously, the very specific description of officers of the temple highlights the contrast between the, the power of the coming kingdom of God and the power of authorities and officials in high places. We're not given any sense of Judas's inner motivations. We have no sense that this is a principled action on his part, that he's maybe disappointed in Jesus or that he disapproves of Jesus' uh, mission. We have only Satan's influence and the offer of money. So, both the story of Judas and the story of Ananias and Sapphira include Satan and money. Let's hold that for a minute. We'll come back. You say, well, that's a thin link. Yeah, it is right now, but it's going to get thick. All right. In light of this confluence of Satan's involvement and the offer of money, it's interesting to notice the setting in which Luke places Jesus' words about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you thought Anna Spiro was fun, you know, this business about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is fun, too. So, in Matthew and Mark, it comes in the context of a healing story and a subsequent account of others saying he does these kinds of things by the power of Beelzebul, but not in Luke. The setting in Luke is different. First of all, it comes in this setting of a public defense of Jesus before rulers and authorities. Everyone who acknowledges me before others, Jesus says, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man 
will be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What is particularly noteworthy about this unique setting for Luke of this saying is what comes immediately after. Luke places the warning up against two prominent themes that we have been tracking in the book of Acts. First, and more immediately, Jesus reminds his followers here that they will be brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, but that they should not worry what they will say, but that the Holy Spirit will give them what they need, so they should not worry. But not only should they not worry about that, they also should not worry about possessions. So again, now we have possessions and authority and Satan and the Holy Spirit all kind of gathered up into one place in a significant text in Luke's Gospel. In the very next verse, in chapter 12, verse 13, a request is made by a man for Jesus to settle a dispute about an inheritance. And Jesus warns him, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he adds to that warning by telling the parable of a rich man who builds bigger barns, right? A parable that's a warning. And this then is immediately followed in Luke by the saying not to worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, these words are familiar to us. Consider the birds. Luke says, consider the ravens and the lilies of the field. God takes care of them. God will take care of you. What often goes unnoticed, oh, oh, wait, I didn't get it all. We know those words, but we don't know these words. Do not keep striving for these things, Jesus says. The nations of the world strive after these things. Instead, strive after the kingdom of God, and these things will be given to you as well. Um, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Then, um, Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So the nations, other kingdoms, worry about possessions. Not you. You trust God for that. And if you trust God, then God's kingdom will be given to you. And then with language undeniably tied to our summary that we began with in Acts 
4, 32 through 37, Jesus says, sell your possessions and give alms. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see how Luke's arranging things to present for us a picture related to Satan, the Holy Spirit, the kingdoms of the world, the kingdom of God, possessions, use of wealth, the giving of alms. All these things for Luke are tied together. So the saying concerning blasphemy against the Holy Spirit appears in Luke in a context that includes teaching about possessions, including a call to sell your possessions and give alms. Precisely what Barnabas does, precisely what Ananias and Sapphira refuse to do. So I think the story of Ananias and Sapphira bears unmistakable reference to these previous stories in Luke. And I'm not going to go so far as to say that this is definitively the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but we're in the ballpark. All right, let's keep going. All this takes place under kind of Luke's view of how economies work in the world. And in the ancient world, the economies worked in relationship to systems of honor and shame and patronage. So those with honor are the patrons, those with shame are the clients. Clients do favors for the patrons to gain favor that then hopefully they will uh, get a favor in return. Now, Greco-Roman philosophers like Seneca and others around the time of Jesus said, you should not give alms to the poor because they cannot repay you. They cannot do a favor in return. It's outside of kind of the normal relationships of economic exchange. Not only that, for Greco-Roman philosophers, poverty was moralized. So the poor are reprobate. And for you to give alms to them in public would be to attach your reputation to theirs. In contrast to Greco-Roman views of almsgiving, in the Old Testament, right, we're instructed to give alms all the time. It's not because they didn't have a kind of patron-client view of uh, economies in the Old Testament. It's that the rich person is never your patron. Your patron is God Almighty. And God's patronage extends all the way to the poor. And so as, as, uh, as you give to the poor, you are honoring the patronage of God. And so it's a covenant ideal of Israel 
and one in which I think Jesus feels like uh, the religious authorities of his day have moved away from. So in Luke 14, for instance, we have this story of Jesus eating at a banquet hosted by a Pharisee, right? And he notices how they're jockeying for seats of honor. They're, they're participating in the system of reciprocity and favor doing. And Jesus says, look, when you go to a banquet, take the lowest seat. And then uh, don't take the highest seat, lest someone more important than you has been invited. And your host would come and say, give this man your seat. As for you, come to this low place at the table. Instead, take the low seat. And then if your host comes, say, says to you, come and move higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all. For I tell you, those who, are, who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then you remember the next part? In the next part, Jesus tells, turns to the host of the banquet and says, when you throw a banquet, don't invite your rich friends, your relatives, your neighbors, lest they repay you. Instead, he says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, because they cannot repay you, and you will be blessed and you will have reward in the resurrection of the righteous. I think Jesus is directly critiquing the system of patronage and reciprocity that now characterizes the banquet in the home of a religious leader. And I think ultimately he's saying, you're acting like the Gentiles. You're not acting in accordance to the covenant uh, promises. You're not living in covenant fidelity with Yahweh, whose patronage extends to the poor. All right. One more piece. This is a common saying to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew and Mark, it comes at the end of Jesus' third passion prediction. In Luke, it comes in a little bit different setting. All of them say something like, well, in Matthew and Mark, it says, the Gentiles lorded over those who are under their care. But here, Luke says, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And then... Luke adds, and this is unique to Luke, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So Jesus is critiquing the, um, not only kings, again, were lifting up the lowly, bringing the powerful down from their thrones in Luke, right? He's not only critiquing the position of authority and power, but he's naming it 
economically. Are you with me? They are the patrons. They make you call them so they make you call them benefactors. Okay. That's a long ways to go, I know, but it's a hard text, right? You have to go a long ways. You have to go around the block a couple of times on things like this. Right? You've read it in Bible class, said, hmm, wonder what that means. And then you went on to something else. Well, I'm gonna make you look for a while. All right. Now, let's put the death of Ananias and Sapphira over against two other gruesome deaths in Acts. That's fun, right? We'll be our own little episode of CSI right here, right? Um, they're gruesome. The first one's related to Judas. Now, Judas acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong. I have done this more than once. Falling headlong. He burst open in the middle. Fortunately, that has never happened to me. He burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Not some of them. Not like he had a hernia where an intestine broke through the stomach wall, but all of his bowels gushed out. It's a very, shall we say, vivid description of a death. All right, the other one is King Herod. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm missing it. Let me see if I can go. Somebody find the account of the death of King Herod in Acts 13, maybe 12, somewhere in there. 12? All right. So, Herod dies. Herod has been persecuting Christians, but that's not the occasion of his death. The people of Tyre and Sidon, um, Herod is angry with them, and Herod has withheld food from them. Herod is their benefactor. And so they prostrate themselves before Herod when he comes out arrayed in purple robes, again, a visible sign of his authority, and the people chant to him, Behold, not the voice of a mortal, but of a god. Here, idolatry and economic well-being have been joined very specifically in the story. And because Herod did not give glory to the true God, but received the glory as the benefactor in this story, 
Remember, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones are called benefactors. And here Herod is in that very specific role. And an angel of the Lord, I don't know, what does it say? Smote him, came upon him, did, and worms ate him alive, and he died. A horrible, gruesome death, right? So, I think these three stories are connected. And I'm less concerned about, like, I don't think Luke is moralizing here and saying, if you sell property and hold back some of the proceeds, beware, you may die. I think the point of the story is to heighten the relationship between use of possessions and being inspired by the Holy Spirit and not Satan. These stories stand guard over the value of an economy of sharing versus an economy of patronage. There are plenty of other places in Acts where uh, people don't do what God wants them to do, and they're forgiven and do great. But these stories that all deal with wealth, all deal with Satan, all deal with idolatry in one form or another, are standing guard over the communal value of sharing a common life. And this is evidence of living in life of the Holy Spirit in Acts. So, I mean, um, it's frightening to me, you know, to think that, uh, but, but let me frame it differently. Like, Luke is hoping that the surprise of the death of Jesus will shock people into a new sensibility so that their perceptual kind of vision of the world will be dramatically altered. And I want to suggest there's no uh, place to more dramatically alter your view of the world than your use of and view of possessions and how you see rich and poor. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that one. Uh, but I'll pause for questions. You have questions? Or have I convinced you? Yeah, so Luke's after the, the shocking realization that devout Jews in league with Herod and Pilate have put the Son of God to death is designed to shock them into a new perceptual reality, to get them to repent from a previous way of life and to view the world differently. And there may be more, no more dramatic place to have a change in our perceptions of the world than in our views of economies, in our view of use of possessions, 
in our views of the poor and the rich. And I think for Luke, this is undeniably the work of the Spirit. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that I I don't think that fits the overall story Luke is telling. Um, yes, it's true, but he doesn't say you lied to us. This is a betrayal of the Holy Spirit inspired by Satan. And when you track those throughout Luke Acts related to possessions, the sin is clearly related to the use of possessions. Now, I... Pardon me? Well, no. Um, I think... Um, Again, I think the primary value of these stories is rhetorical. That it's protecting the space. That they were together, they shared everything in common, right? Again, I said, I don't think it's a story to be moralized. I think it's a story that underlines the value of the right use of possessions and to move out of an economy of reciprocity and into an economy that's where God's patronage extends to those who are in need, right? So, at least that's my best shot. All right, how do I do this every time? All right, I want to make a few points about telling stories and transgressing boundaries in Luke's story. And I'm not going to give you everything I intended to, but um, let's think about the cycle of stories that begins with Peter and Cornelius in chapter 10 and goes all the way to the Jerusalem Council in chapter 15. Um, so that begins with the story of Peter and Cornelius, right? And then we have the stories related to the church in Antioch. And I'll just briefly touch on some things here. So in 1017... Peter's had this vision of the sheep coming down from heaven, rise, kill, and eat three times, and Peter refuses, right? And when he wakes from the uh, trance, Luke says this, Peter was puzzled about what to make of the vision he had seen. Then he goes to Cornelius' house, gets a little more data, and then in, in a matter of 17 verses, he says, I now see. I understand God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. 
Now, I want to suggest that the movement from confusion or bewilderment to clarity has a lot to do with retelling the story over time. That Peter tells that story again two other times between chapter 10 and chapter 15, and each time he tells a story, new things become apparent to him. And he's pushed to tell the story anew, in part because now he's got more data to kind of go into his experience, and in part because there are those who oppose him, and he has to defend what's gone on in Cornelius' house, right? But each time he tells a story, the meaning becomes more elaborate. And I don't know if this is Luke's purpose in telling, but Luke could have just said, Peter told his story again, and there were a few new elements, you know? But instead, he goes through the whole narrative again, and these new elements appear so that in the retelling of the story, over time, in new circumstances, the meanings of the story become richer and fuller. And so, for instance, the second time he tells the story, he remembers what Jesus had said to them, that John baptizes with water, but I will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit, right? He didn't remember that in the first telling of the story. And in the last telling of the story, he says, it's really clear now that God meant for me to be the first to preach the good news to the Gentiles. Where'd that come from? That wasn't, you know, it wasn't in the first two tellings. But then the stunning one is that he says, it's now clear to me that the Gentiles will be saved in exactly the same way. We will be saved in the exact same way the Gentiles will. So it's not the Gentiles will be saved the way Jews will, but rather the Jews will be saved the same way the Gentiles will. It's not Cornelius who was converted in the story. It's Peter and the whole church community. And remember, this starts, the story starts in Cornelius' house, not with the vision given to Peter. It starts outside the boundary of the community. It starts apart from the strategic concerns of the church. It starts in the encounter of a person with peace who does not yet belong to the story. Real quick on uh, the stories in Antioch. They begin with the stoning of Stephen and the persecution that comes upon the church, right? And they're scattered. And as they go, they're preaching. But they're only preaching, Luke says, to the Hebrews. Except for these two guys from Cyprus and Cyrene, not from Jerusalem, Hellenists from Cyprus and Cyrene, 
start preaching to Gentiles. I've been in that elders' meeting. Did you approve that? I didn't approve that. Who approved that? Who gave them the authority or the responsibility? Did you do that? I didn't do that. So they send Barnabas to check it out, right? And Barnabas there is described as a person full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. And Luke says, the hand of the Lord was with them. And later we find out that the church in Antioch has an overabundance of prophets, of people filled with the Holy Spirit. And they then lay hands on Paul and Barnabas and send them up further into kind of Gentile regions on the first missionary journey. This is striking to me. Up until this point in Acts, no one has laid hands on other people other than 12. Not James, not any of the other leaders in Jerusalem, only the 12. But here, this little rump offshoot, unauthorized across the boundaries, experiment in Antioch has enough of the Holy Spirit to sanction new mission. I think it's a stunning story. All right, we could do that all day. So here's kind of an anatomy of these stories. I'm sorry it's small. But these Peter Antioch stories kind of have these elements. Surprising experiences to which the characters are both attentive and obedient. We ignore surprises, right? Or want them to go away. But here the people are attentive and obedient. There's a confirmation of the experience through the experience of others. Peter has this dramatic experience, but he has no idea what it means. He has this direct encounter with God, but he has no idea what it means. It's only then through his experience related to the experience of others that things begin to become clear. Alternative voices, voices of dissent, occasion a deepened accounting of the experience. So we need the voices of dissent in our communities. Fourth, a gathering of the church pushes for shared clarity on the meaning of the experiences. And finally, confirmation of the meaning of the experiences comes through appeal to memories and to other sacred traditions. It's finally that James stands up and says, look, Peter's experience is convincing. God has accepted the Gentiles. And by the way, this reminds me of some scripture I know, right? And he quotes scripture. I'll make this point quick. None of the conversion that happens here comes because 
they studied it out. None of it. The new thing very seldom, then or now, comes through a Bible study through which a new conclusion is reached. Dramatic changes come instead from the Spirit interrupting us long enough for a new imagination to take root so that we learn to read Scripture differently. Does that make sense? All right. All right, so then um, at the end of the book, and I haven't written this part, I talk about postures and practices. What would get us to a 1528 moment? If we're not doing patterns, how do we talk about this? And the way I've decided to talk about it is in relation to postures and practices. So by postures, I mean beliefs or attitudes that create a disposition or sense of anticipation that provides an orientation to the world. We anticipate that God is going to do something and we're oriented that way to the world. In other words, our posture to the world and to God, that should say, determines to a great extent both what we notice and what meaning we assign to what we've noticed. By practice, I mean habits that constitute a way of life. As habits, these practices are not to be done only as needed or on occasions when problems rise, but to quote the great theologian Miyagi, they are the wax-on, wax-offs of shared community life. Okay? All right, so I'm going to give you a few, and I'm sorry I didn't manage my time well, but here are kind of five postures that I've identified in the narrative in Acts, and I reserve the right to change all these and to come up with more or take some out, but right now this is where I am. So posture number one, the living God the risen Christ and the Holy Spirit are active in leading God's people. And you want to say, duh, but as my uh, mentor says, Christians in churches are practical atheists. They're doing things they think God wants them to do, but they have little idea that God is active in their midst. Um, so cultivating that posture of openness to the living God is a crucial attitude to being drawn into the life of the Spirit in Acts. Number two, God gives power for God's mission in the world, and waiting is a power-filled action. Um, at the beginning of Luke, the church is not drawing up a strategic plan. There is no plan anywhere that I can find in the book of Acts. You know, Paul always goes to synagogues. So missiologists say, see, 
there's a missionary strategy. But there's no strategy in Acts. They're waiting for power from on high. And they're following the lead of the Holy Spirit wherever they find it. Right? So waiting is a powerful action. I like to tell my students, nowhere in the Bible does it say urgency is a fruit of the Spirit. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Waiting for power from on high is a posture of the church in Acts. Third, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. It's not the property of the 12. It's not the property of the leadership of the congregation. It's not the property of any single gender or any single ethnicity. The Spirit of God has been poured out on all flesh. And that is a critical attitude or posture for mission in Acts. The work of God is often initiated among outsiders, and I know none of your churches deep down believe this. I know it because you don't act that way. You're trying to get outsiders to become part of you. You're not thinking God's action may be with them. That we may need to learn our life from them. Like Cornelius. Or preaching to unauthorized people. Right? And then fifth, God works beyond the sacred page. Um, we are not going to be a people that have 15, 28 moments if we think they will come only at the end of a Bible study or a sermon series. We have got to be attending to the lives of the people of God, plumbing their experiences for evidence of the Holy Spirit, finding ways that stories intersect and cross and influence each other and create larger meanings than any one single story might have. Which means, well, I'm getting into practices. That's the posture, right? All right, practices, prayer. Everywhere in Luke, they're praying. And every time they pray, something significant happens. And I wonder, I just wonder, if you didn't meet for the purpose of singing 30 praise songs, or hearing a 30-minute sermon, but if you meant, meant to pray, if your life might be different. You can still sing and still have a sermon, but prayer is the primary activity of worship for the people of God in Luke and Acts. It's a practice. 
sharing a common life. I'm telling you, we do not do that. We think being a part of a church largely consists of showing up on Sunday mornings, putting a check in the plate, and see you next Sunday. Right? Sometimes we do better than that, but you can be a member in good standing if that's all you do. But we don't share life. We don't share possessions. We don't share food. And I'm sound old and grumpy, not like we used to. I know that. I know our practices of being together have become thinner, not thicker. And I don't know how in the world you can have an Acts 15, 28 moment if you're not sharing life together. For whole church discernment, Acts, Acts 6, Acts 15, the whole church is gathered. And I think if you're too big, most of you aren't, but if you're too big to do whole church discernment, you may not be a church. You may be a religious organization, but you're no longer in a position to have and it seem good to us in the Holy Spirit moment. And this is a practice, I think, that is tied to the posture of believing that the Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. If that's true, why would you limit the participation of people in discerning the work of God in your midst? Can I get an amen? No? Okay. Number five, telling stories. Um, we have to create spaces for sharing the accounts of what's going on in our lives. And some of you do that in small groups, but I think there needs to be a way to do that where everyone can hear. I know it's hard. I know you're not, these are muscles. They're wax on, wax off. They're, you, you gotta develop muscle memory, but you're not gonna get 1528 without telling stories because the work of God becomes clearer the meaning becomes more apparent the more you re-narrate your experience. Six, reflecting together. Um, we seldom ask people to reflect together on the meaning of our life as the people of God. We've got a lot of stuff on that. And finally, scriptural imagination. It has to be moving in the background. It's not ever foregrounded in Acts. It's not the first thing they do. They never say, we should study this out. I think there are times to do that. But I think being deeply filled with Scripture is important then in moments where we're in new situations that don't have a proof text but you have an imagination that's been collectively formed by a deep engagement over time with the word of God.